as you're, uh, as you're making your way back in, uh, I've got something to, to give away. Um, maybe maybe you're, uh, you're, you're in a triad and, and you guys are maybe stuck in knowing what to do with your time. So I've got something here to give away. It's a, it's a 12-week Bible study through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, our triad did it last year, and it was really helpful in kind of even preparing to do this series. So if, if you'd like to go through a 12-week Bible study with your triad, uh, raise your hand, and you, can have a, you guys can have these and, and use those for some personal Bible study. Uh, Dale Matthews in the back. Dan, will you bring these back to Dale? And anybody else that would like one. I have more in my study if anyone else would like one. So if I seem uh, a little rushed or giddy this morning, it's because as soon as I'm done preaching here, we are going on family vacation. The Suburban's loaded. It's full of bikes. They'll probably be stolen by the end of the service. And while I'm gone, we're grateful that Joel will be preaching next weekend. And uh, Mitch will be in the pulpit for the two weeks after that. Uh, farewell parting words of sorts. <laughs> and I'll be back for one of those. By way of context, um, uh, Jesus is now in the Gospel of Matthew facing some public opposition to his, his life and ministry. And we saw last week the intense opposition that he received from Herod. Herod, fearing that John the Baptist had been raised from the dead in the person of Jesus. It's in that context that Jesus actually withdraws from Galilee, and he goes across the lake to the northeastern side, and he's seeking a place of solitude and rest for himself and for his disciples. And in that context, we come to the passage that we're going to study this morning. Um, We'll be in Matthew chapter 14, starting at verse 13. I'll read it to us in a moment here. When you come to Matthew chapter 14, um, you're coming to the end of what scholars call uh, the great Galilean ministry. And it's estimated that Jesus began this long ministry somewhere around uh, AD 27 and, and, and maybe ends it um, in, in AD 29. So he's there for, for two whole years of, of ministry, and, and this is the end of it here. Um, but we also know that uh, he's only a year away from, from his betrayal and his, and his crucifixion. One commentator said it like this. One more year in the Lamb of God will by the means of his death on a cross render satisfaction for the sins of all who trust in him. So it's at this significant point that Jesus performs his most famous of miracles, the feeding of the 5,000. In the midst of his ministry on the northeastern shore of Galilee. Um, in, in many stories or, or, or action movies, you know, it's about halfway through that you kind of reach that point where um, it's time to, you know, gird up for battle, right? In, in, in Star Wars, it's where Luke goes and trains with Obi-Wan. Um, in, in Braveheart, it's William Wallace. Uh, training the troops, but my favorite is when Kevin McAllister gets ready for Marvin Harry in Home Alone. (laughs) 
and he sets up his traps and, and so on. And there's this whole portion, there's this whole portion of, of, of the movie where he's setting up his traps. And at the end comes the climax, where's the great battle, and so on. And that's sort of where we're at in the Gospel of Matthew. We've kind of come to that place where we're about halfway through. We are halfway through in terms of, of sheer content. And we're going to see in this text Jesus preparing his disciples for the coming revolution that he's bringing. We're going to see Jesus preparing his disciples for the coming revolution that he's bringing. So I'll read the text to us. We'll unpack it under three points. We'll pray, and I will go. Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 to 21. Now when Jesus heard this, the beheading of John the Baptist, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And when he went, excuse me, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we only have five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men, besides women and children. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your most perfect and holy word. We are grateful that you've given it to us, that you've not left us alone and to our own devices, but that you've communicated to us finally in your Son and in your Word. We pray, Lord, that Jesus Christ would be lifted up and adored for all that he is in this place. Help me now. Help us now. In Jesus' name, amen. So kids, if you're listening for a key word, and you'd like to make a tick mark on and come tell me afterwards, the key word this morning is revolution. Revolution. Not revolution. Revolution. <laughs> Point one, the coming revolution. So this is, this is a very significant text um, to the church. It, it's the only miracle that appears in all four gospel accounts, and it was very significant to the early church. Um, there, there are many murals and, and paintings, um, etc., um, that from the early church that kind of represent this this event here. It's very significant uh, to early Christians, and, and I think the text is doing something intentional here, and it's intentionally taking us from one banquet to the next. And, and, and the previous banquet, the one that we saw last week, was this extravagant show of power this sort of over-the-top, grandiose, to the point of of being even a disgusting show of power um, from Herod. And now we see this other banquet. We see the true king, the rightful king of Israel, put on his own banquet. 
And he puts on a banquet out in the wilderness. I must show you the significance of where Jesus is doing this in order for you to understand the meaning here. So verse 13, by, by starting here, it's, it tells us that Jesus is withdrawing to a desolate place, that he's in need of rest. And there was never probably a better time in Jesus' ministry when he could have rightly said, look, I'm tired. Go home. I need some rest. I've been ministering in Galilee. My disciples are under pressure because John's been killed. They know that Herod probably could have done the same thing to them. Maybe his plan was to. You know, his, his cousin, his forerunner, John the Baptist, has just died a few weeks back. And he could legitimately say, I just need time to think, be alone, pray. I mentioned last week, Jesus is well aware that the martyrdom of John the Baptist was yet another reminder from God that his hour was coming and it was coming soon. He knows that if his forerunner, the great prophet, suffers that kind of death, he knows that his own impending death is coming, for he knows what he's come to do. And Jesus probably also knew that his disciples probably needed some relief as well. You can imagine what it could have been like ministering the word of God, knowing that at any moment Herod's men could arrive and do exactly to you what they did to John. They could throw you in prison, allow you to languish for months, and eventually be executed. And not on some kind of judicial charge, but on the whim of a wicked woman. And so you can imagine the pressure of the disciples in that kind of setting. And Jesus knew that he needed to get them out of that setting for a moment so that they might commune with God, maybe recharge their spiritual batteries, we might say, take a break from work so they might be ready to go out and minister again. But when Jesus steps ashore, when he gets to the other side, he sees the crowds. And he sees the crowds, and he's not angry, and he's not bitter. And he doesn't withdraw. In fact, the text tells us that Jesus sees the crowds and he has compassion on them. And he begins to heal their sick. He has compassion. He heals their sick and he teaches them. And we know as we studied last Advent season, we looked at the emotional life of Jesus. And we know that every time we come to this Greek word, I get really excited because I get to say my favorite Greek word. Right, Matt's Rust? Splonknidzamai. <laughs> it means that Jesus has moved in himself with compassion. It's an emotional feeling. It means that his, inner, his, his very person is moved when he sees the crowds. He's not bothered. He's not bitter. Our Lord is one who has great Compassion. But to further understand the significance and the symbolism here, you also have to further understand what is meant by a desolate place. And all of the accounts will make this point to us, that he's in a desolate place. And this is not a normal place of ministry. He's not in a village. He's not in Jerusalem. He's in a desolate place. And the commentators will will make clear to us that a desolate place is where the rejects are. Why would this crowd be gathered in the middle of of nowhere. Why would this crowd be gathering in this desolate place in the middle of nowhere? Well, John, in his account, will actually tell us. He'll tell us in John chapter 6, verse 15, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. 
Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. You see the point, what's going on here. You can imagine what the, the, what the, what the, what the tone was, must have been in seeing this wicked ruler like Herod. I said last week that, that a, a, a ruler like Herod, a colonial leader like Herod, really only has one job from the emperor. Keep the peace. That's all he's really supposed to do. Just don't, just don't upset the, the, the moral and, and, and cultural standards of the day. And, and Herod does the exact opposite. He has multiple wives. He throws these extravagant um, um, de- de- parties of, 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 of debauchery and so on. I mean, he kills their great prophet. I mean, he's, he's a horrible colonial leader. All he was supposed to do is keep the peace. So you can imagine, you can imagine the, 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 the tone. You can imagine the, the, the disposition that the disciples and, and, and just even the the, the citizens would be in at this point. Like, this is a despot leader. So the texts make the point that the, that the crowds are going out because they want a revolutionary leader. They want to take Jesus by force and make him to be their king. They're looking for a revolutionary leader. That's the first point. The second point, they get a revolution, but the second point is the unexpected revolution. They went out to find themselves a revolutionary leader because they needed a revolution to happen, and they get one, but it's an unexpected one. It's an unexpected one. Mark 6, in Mark's account, We'll say this in verse 33 and 34, that when he went ashore and saw the great crowd and had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. They were like sheep without a shepherd. Now that, that, that image um, gives us sort of a pastoral image, right? We, we, we think of places like Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. We, 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 we think of, of the sheep shepherd kind of imagery. And that's yes and no true of what's going on here. But Jesus is doing more than just creating for us a pastoral image when it says that he sees them as sheep without a shepherd. What he's actually doing is he's actually quoting Moses. He's quoting Moses from Numbers chapter 27. And at the end of Moses' life, Moses is praying this prayer that God would raise up a new leader. That God would, have, would, would, would care for his people Israel. And after Moses goes, he would raise up a leader. Moses 27, sorry, 16 says this. Then the Lord, let the Lord the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. So yes, it's a pastoral image, but it's also a a, a military and political leader because who does the Lord raise up? Joshua. And Joshua is one who is a great military political leader. He's able to lead the people. So Jesus knows, he knows that these people are coming out looking for that kind of leader. He knows that they're coming looking for someone to, that, 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 they can, that they can make to be their, their, their king. Now why did I start the sermon the way I did? Quoting Star Wars and Braveheart and that great... Classic Home Alone. <laughs> Thank you, Molly. <laughs> because when revolutionaries see people coming, looking for a leader to lead them, what do they do? 
They arm them. They prepare them for the coming revolution. Listen to this quote from commentator. He says, Jesus will not march to a populist and militarist drumbeat. He will not be a militant, messianic shepherd of sheep. His wilderness banquet is not modeled after a zealot chieftain. Did you hear that? His wilderness banquet is not modeled after a zealot chieftain. He's not like every other revolutionary. Because every other revolutionary at this point, when people came out, when they came out to greet them, he would give them weapons and he would start weapons training. But what does Jesus give them? Jesus gives them his word and he gives them bread. And he gives them food distribution training. He gives them his word and he gives them bread. And bread here, bread throughout the ancient world was more than just a symbol of food. It was a symbol of food, but it was more than that. It was a symbol of life itself. Bread is life. Jesus is coming giving his word, and he's coming giving life itself. He's not a symbol of death. He's not a symbol of death like other revolutionary leaders would have been, giving out weapons and so on. He's a symbol of life itself. In fact, his word is bread. His word itself is bread. It is life-giving. He'll, he'll tell us in Matthew chapter 4. He said, this, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He'll say in John six forty seven, truly I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. But this is the bread. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will, and the bread that I will give for them is my flesh. You see what he's saying? He's saying, he's, he's, he's tapping into a, a deeper human need. He's saying, yeah, I know you're hungry. I know you have this surface level need and, and you're, you have you have. You have Belly pangs and so on. He's saying, but you have a deeper hunger that only I can deal with. You have a longing within yourself that only I can deal with. You have a desire within yourself that only I can deal with. I am the bread of life. It's a totally unexpected revolution. They're coming out to try to make him be king by force. And what he does instead is he gives him his word He speaks to them. He teaches them. John Paul Sartre said this, that God does not exist. This I cannot deny. He's an atheist. But that my whole being cries out for him, I cannot forget. That God does not exist, I cannot deny. But that my whole being cries out for him, I cannot forget. Even Sartre was an atheist, realized the deep longing, the deep emptiness in his own heart, in his own life. And Jesus knows that he can certainly meet, and he does meet, their material, physical need. But because he's a compassionate and gracious Savior, he knows that they have a far deeper need that he will meet. He knows that they need the bread of life. Do you realize the emptiness that you have 
It has to be dealt with. And it can only, it can only be dealt with through Jesus Christ himself. And that's his word. His word is life-giving. But his ministry is also marked by deed. He does give them physical bread. And this is the great paradox of Jesus. It's the great paradox of the church. Jesus comes preaching and teaching and healing the sick. And it's become so significant to the proclamation of the gospel that as the early church is forming in God's providence, there are two offices in the church. There are elders and there are deacons. Because the ministry of the word ought not be neglected. The ministry of the word, giving, giving the word of Jesus to, 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 to his people and his disciples ought be neglected. But also it's so significant to meet physical and actual needs that there's a second office of deacon. Who will be given to the work of service, given to the work of meeting practical needs in the life of people, in the life of the church, in the life of the world around us. So word and deed is, the, is what marked Jesus' ministry, and word and deed is what marks the church. So much so that there are two offices in the church. So much so that there are two offices in the church. I just want to commend the deacons to you. I, I, was, I showed up about 8.30 this morning to go to my study and pray and go over my notes. The deacons, they're in the old chapel just meeting. And they're talking and they're strategizing. They're talking about practical needs in the congregation. Because they love and they care for you. I'm just grateful that God has given us those kinds of deacons in this church. Pray for them. Encourage them. Encourage their work. What do we see, though, still on this point of deed? in this unexpected revolution. What do we see when we see Jesus performing this miracle here? Is Jesus just, um, is he just going about like a magician of sorts? You know, just trying to get people to ooh and ah, maybe a little bit here and there. Listen to the commentator. He says, when Jesus expels demons and heals the sick, he is driving out of creation the powers of destruction and is healing and restoring created beings who are hurt and sick. The lordship of God to which the healing witnesses restores creation to health. Here it is. Jesus' healings are not supernatural miracles in a natural world. They are the only truly natural thing in a world that is unnatural, demonized, and wounded. You hear what he said there? He said that the only natural things that are happening in a world that is unnatural, demonized, and wounded. So when Jesus is performing a miracle, he's not suspending the natural order as we know it and doing something different. Instead, what he's doing is he's reordering things to the way that they ought be. So when you see Jesus performing a miracle, it's him setting the world. It's a glimpse. It's an image. It's a window into Jesus setting the world the way it's supposed to be. When you see him healing the sick, he's restoring things to the way that they were at creation before the fall, and he's restoring them to the way that they will be when he comes in his kingdom. When you see him feeding people that have hunger pains, it's because we were never meant to go hungry. When you see Jesus performing miracles, you're getting a window, a glimpse, a picture into the way that the world is going to be one day. When he comes in the fullness of his kingdom and he writes every wrong and he wipes away every tear, every sickness, every disease, that's what he's doing. And when we, 
even, even the new creation itself, when Jesus comes in the fullness of his kingdom, it starts with a feast. It starts with a feast, celebrating all that God has done. And this hope of future bread, of seeing Jesus multiply bread for his people, gives hope to us now. But another point in this unexpected revolution, another point in this unexpected revolution are those that are made to be revolutionaries. As Jesus gets out of the boat and he begins to minister to people, and um, the disciples who are very practically minded, you know, they come to him at the end of the day and they say, Lord, the hour for buying food and even for eating food has come and gone, and we are in a remote place. Uh, there's no one town where all of these people can go and buy food, and, and anyway, all these shops are probably starting to close up. The marketplace is going to close up, and, and these people need to get going. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be dark soon. We're in a lonely, desolate place where, where, they, where there's no food. You need to send these people and send them home. And Jesus, and it's, it's very emphatic in the, in the Greek, says, no, you feed them. You feed them. And the disciples, of course, are at a loss. <laughs> what are you talking about? The disciples are at a loss. But Jesus' words to the disciples were just as compassionate as he was towards the multitudes. Just as Jesus was showing compassion to the crowd, he wants his disciples to have compassion towards them as well. Jesus' response to the crowds following him serves to impress upon his disciples the mandate for their own self-sacrificial ministry. Jesus had called his disciples to be shepherds of the flock. And in this passage, he's giving them a practical example of how to shepherd the flock. The shepherd denies himself for the sake of the flock, he's showing them. That's the example that he's setting forth. The disciples, very practically, wanted to send the people home. But Jesus, because he knows that these people need a shepherd, desires to care for them. He wants his disciples to have the same type of, of, of disposition, of compassion as he, as, he, as, he, as he ministers, as they minister to the needs around them. One more quote. The needs of people sick and ignorant and hungry meant far more to Jesus than his own convenience and ease. And so he heals their sick in spite of his own needs and their earthly motivations for following him. But you see the principle here. Here's, here's the principle. The principle is that we always just have five loaves and two fish. That's the principle. And, and, and Bruner, who's the commentator that I've been quoting most of the time here, says, disciples need to learn to count to eight. Amen. Disciples need to learn to count to eight. Because five plus two is seven. And they always just see what they have in their hands. But they need to learn to see their own inadequacy. And here's the point. That Jesus' work in the world is impossible. It is. Whether it's word or deed. 
I mean, the problems in the neighborhood around us are, are so bad that I don't know how we're ever going to meet them. And you know how awkward it is when you preach the gospel to someone because you know that unless God does something supernatural, they're just not going to believe. But that's the inadequacy of ourselves is always the place where true ministry actually starts. It's not God's intention that we would be adequate to our tasks. We can't just take on tasks that fit our gifting. The church will always be full of problems. There will always be money problems. There will always be people problems. There will always be problems of inadequacy. But the point of the text is that is the only prerequisite necessary to see Jesus move in this church, in this world, in our lives. It's always five loaves and two fish. Always. And coming to the point of seeing our own inadequacy is the prerequisite for Jesus to actually move through us and among us. And the disciples, the disciples learned that lesson in a pretty miraculous sort of way. As Jesus takes what they already have, they already have the five loaves and the two fish, and he multiplies it in an extraordinary sort of way. We already have the five loaves and the two fish. We already have it here among us. We have it here among us as a people. And as we realize our own inadequacy and still seek to preach the gospel, still seek to meet the needs of the neighborhood around us and the neighborhoods that we live, then God multiplies. Then God moves and works. So that's the unexpected revolution. Now point three, which will be the shortest of them all, as we wrap up, is the start of the revolution. Now I said a moment ago, and I hinted at least a moment ago that every revolution starts with an act of violence. Whether it's, whether it's, whether it's, um, <laughs> whether it's the paint can coming down the stairway from Kevin McAllister, or whether it's William Wallace, or whether it's Star Wars. Every revolution starts with an act of violence. And I did say a moment ago that Jesus is different than every other revolutionary in that he brings word and bread instead of a sword. But even Jesus' revolution starts with an act of violence. The language here is very specific. It says, Then he broke the loaves and he gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And that's the exact same language that Jesus will use in the upper room on the night of his betrayal. As his disciples were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after blessing it, he broke it. He broke it, and he gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And Jesus Christ himself who is the bread of life, must be broken first. And on the cross, he was broken. As John will tell us, truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever, loses, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus here, 
is giving us this image of breaking bread because every revolution starts with an act of violence. And the life-giving revolution that Jesus Christ brings starts with the act of violence of the wrath of God being poured out on Jesus on the cross. And as he falls to the ground, dead, died, buried, and rises three days later, he starts the greatest revolution that the world has ever seen. A ministry of life-giving power and love to his people. And because he was broken for your sake, you won't be broken by the Father. Instead, you come to a table, and we come to a table here in a moment, we remember the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in our place and on our behalf. And when we come to that, and we realize that, and the further it sinks down into our heart, it gives us the love, the joy, the motivation to be life-giving to the world around us in both word and deed. Let us pray. Father, we're grateful. We're grateful for your word. We're grateful for this, this wonderful act from Jesus that points us to the great breaking of bread on the cross where the bread of life was crushed for our sake. We ask God for your help as we come to the Lord's table tonight, today, and we remember what Jesus Christ has done for us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.